KZSU News Central, a relatively roundtable, your weekly campus news roundup here, live Fridays at 5 p.m. on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to us. I'm Ken Durr. I'm Sean Gandhi. Darlene Franklin is away today. Coming up this hour, we take a deeper look into campus worker advocacy with Students for Workers' Rights. This week on campus, health economist Karen Eggleston gave a community lecture on the background on the coronavirus outbreak and what we can expect. We'll have excerpts from her Tuesday afternoon lecture at the Bechtel International Center. And we'll have the latest from the Stanford Daily podcast team. But first, the latest from the Stanford Daily with Ishan. Yes, and a fair warning that this week's on-campus news, uh, the word coronavirus comes up a fair bit, as all might have predicted. So first off, uh, more than 1,500 people signed a petition demanding that Stanford act more forcefully to prevent a potential coronavirus outbreak on campus. The university released a statement on Tuesday afternoon updating its guidelines on the virus, including calling for the cancellation or postponement of large events and encouraging use of phone or video conferencing for meetings. Russell Furr, the Vice Provost for Environmental Health and Safety, wrote that Stanford has, quote-unquote, activated an emergency operations organization to coordinate measures against the virus. He wrote, We're strongly encouraging university units to cancel or postpone events that they're hosting between March 4th and April 15th, April 15th that's involved more than 150 participants. Regular courses, however, are not subject to this suggestion. Uh, that said, my CS lecture this morning was optional. Uh, in addition, Fur announced that student dining halls will be open to serve only Stanford community members. The university will also conduct more frequent cleaning in common areas and encourage community members to take personal precautions by adhering to basic hygienic practices such as hand washing. But the petition, started by the student group Stanford Against Coronavirus, requested the university go even further, asking it to work with Vaden Health Center, RNDE, ASSU, and academic departments to coordinate a comprehensive strategy that protects all Stanford affiliates. This is a direct quote from the petition. If Stanford University hesitates to take immediate and appropriate actions to protect the 1,600 students and 1,400 faculty and staff members, COVID-19 will have a great potential to spread throughout the campus, jeopardizing the lives of us all. Stanford Against Coronavirus drafted a detailed contingency plan that recommends preventative steps the university can take to address the outbreak, including suspending large gatherings, preparing student dorms with disinfectants, and providing dining hall staff with medical masks. Stanford is is also suspending all eight of its international spring quarter study abroad programs in response to the radically evol- rapidly evolving events surrounding COVID-19. Uh, this is as per a decision announced on Wednesday. Uh, that decision will affect 234 undergraduates and eight programs. Now, this is a direct quote from Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Harry Elam. In addition to the spread of the virus itself, students may face unpredictable circumstances overseas during the spring quarter, including accessing healthcare while abroad, navigating disruptions to local services, and the potential for travel interruptions or restrictions. An RF was recently impersonated to report a fake coronavirus case in Florence Moore Hall, or FLOMO. For 21 minutes on Tuesday night, residents of FLOMO were led to believe that they were in the proximity of the first confirmed case of coronavirus on campus. An email that appeared to have been sent from resident fellow John Barton at 9.52 stated that a resident in one of the complex's seven dorms had contracted COVID-19, but to quote-unquote, remain calm as the case has been controlled. A screenshot of the email was then circulated among students. Barton sent an email to Flomo residents afterwards clarified that he had not sent the first email and was unaware of any coronavirus cases in Flomo. 
Stanford Health Alert's website states there are no cases of COVID-19 at any Stanford location. Barton declined to comment to the Daily further on the matter. His, e- his email indicates he reported the hoax to, quote-unquote, the authorities, although Stanford Public Safety spokesperson Bill Larson said no report had been filed there. University IT has not responded to the Daily's request for comment. Six new coronavirus cases have been confirmed in Santa Clara County, bringing the total number of confirmed cases to 20, the Santa Clara County Public Health Department announced at a Thursday press conference. The department also released new guidance to reduce the spread of the virus. Seven of the 20 people with confirmed cases had no known travel or direct contact with other confirmed cases. Four of the six people uh, with newly confirmed cases are at home, and two are hospitalized. The Stanford Medical Clinical Virology Laboratory launched a new diagnostic test for detecting coronavirus on Wednesday. The new test, which can deliver results within 12 to 24 hours, will rapidly uh, identify infected people and could help limit the spread of the virus. The test is currently in use only on patients at Stanford Healthcare and Stanford Children's Health, suspected of having the the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now on to our first non-virus-related news story of the day. Um, After Stanford and government's winter quarter immigration debate between the Stanford Democrats and the Stanford College Republicans led to controversy, Stanford and government is considering the format of its policy events. Stanford and government has hosted several debates between Stanford Dems and Stanford Republicans, but is now considering shifting its policy events away from structured debate and towards a more discussion-based format, format, according to the chair, uh, Natasha Mulji, class of 20. Mulji ascribed the impetus for discussion of debate terms to a combination of dispute over SCR's publication of a video of the immigration debate, fueling worry that debaters could be doxxed, and student concerns over the nature of debate. Uh, the former in particular, I remember causing some difficulty because actually a friend of mine was um, on the uh, was representing Stanford Dems um, in this debate. Um, and actually, yeah, it was published without sort of any prior consent or knowledge um, of the for the debaters that they'd be... Um, their identities would be compromised in this way, with their names, actually, as well, uh, on Facebook. Stanford and government had come, in, had come under fire, so not just for that, but also for giving uh, Stanford College Republicans a platform for its right-wing views on immigration. Uh, this is a direct quote from Stanford and government Vice Chair of Programming, Elena Crespo, 20. Members of our community were upset about the platforming of SCR. We're committed to uplifting the voices of all members of the community, and we're especially sensitive to the impact of policy, because policy touches the lives of people, especially black and brown communities. To also go back to my earlier story on um, on the new test developed uh, by Stanford Med, um, the test is currently uh, in use only on patients at Stanford Healthcare and Stanford Children's Health. Health. Um, it's validated by the Food and Drug Administration and the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments for testing involving human subjects. The lab that developed the test is led by Benjamin Pinksky, who is the Associate Professor of Pathology and Infectious Diseases at the Stanford School of Medicine. Pinksky told, told the Daily that testing is essential because it helps to identify both asymptomatic carriers and infected people, um, particularly pertinent. As I think in coronavirus' case, it's something like t- two weeks you can carry it without symptoms. Or, sorry, or, or forever, actually. But, but essentially that um, asymptomatic characters are a larger consideration than other comparable outbreaks. Um, he also said that these results then inform treatment, quarantine, and the allocation of vital medical resources. So that's all I have for this week's on-campus news from The Daily. Now we're going to be going to an interview with... That's right. Uh, Arman Rashid from Students for Workers' Rights joins us right after this break. Stay with us. 
Following our investigation into the general use permit two weeks ago on the show, we now continue the theme of campus sustainability by taking a deeper look with Arman Rashid with the student advocacy group Students for Workers' Rights. Arman, welcome to KZSU. Thank you for having me. Can you introduce us to the organization and the overarching goals of SWR? Yeah, um, Students for Workers' Rights is an organization that has existed in its current iteration for about three years. We used to be called uh, the Campus Workers Coalition, um, but groups of students organizing on behalf of workers at Stanford have existed throughout Stanford's history under various names and various guises. Um, there used to be, I believe, the Stanford Labor Action Coalition and then uh, Stanford Alliance for Labor. Um, but because of sort of various reasons, the fact that undergraduates are only here for four years at a time, oftentimes it's really hard to keep uh, these groups going for a long period of time. Um, but Students for Workers' Rights in particular, uh, we work with the union, SCIU 2007, which mm -hmm. represents uh, most people who work at Stanford. Um, and our goals are basically focused on, well, there's really a couple structural issues that we run into, right? It's no secret that in the past 30 to 40 years, the cost of living in the areas immediately surrounding Stanford um, has skyrocketed. Um, and so, but like workers' wages on campus have not comparatively, exactly. right? Yeah. Um, and so, Basically, that leads to crises about like affordable housing, um, really long commutes, um, workers having to work multiple jobs, um, just like an inability to reconcile like what Stanford is paying workers with the actual cost of living in the right. Bay Area, particularly right. in the South Bay. Um, and so that is sort of like the larger, th that's like our larger overarching goals is like looking for structural solutions to this problem. Um, and the GUP was sort of one of those pathways that Scope was working mm -hmm. on. Um, but in terms of our current sort of campaigns that we have running, um, we had a bus pilot up until mm -hmm. very recently, which was sort of a holdover from the GUP. Um, and then we also have been working on something called, well, we have been working on dealing with the university's attempt to do a time and motion study, which I can talk about. Sure. Um, and then also are sort of gearing up after last year in 2019, there were contract negotiations, which didn't necessarily go super favorably, um, just sort of strategizing around how to deal with some of these larger issues that workers face on campus. Let's touch upon, as you mentioned, the contract negotiations from last year. Could you yeah. provide us with your viewpoint on what happened with those negotiations? Yeah, so we and many or scope, many organizations were involved in organizing for um, the contract negotiations, which happen every five years. Um, and they also happen during the summer, right, mm -hmm. when students are not here quite deliberately. Uh, okay. And so a lot of the organizing happens during happened during the spring. There was a really big May Day protest that you may or may not have seen. Um, but ultimately, due to a whole host of reasons uh, related to Stanford, related to internal dynamics within the union, there's so many things that go into it. But ultimately, like 
workers did not get the wage raises, the benefits, et cetera, that they were hoping for. Um, and in my personal experience, speaking to workers on campus, like a lot of people I know were really disappointed um, in the outcome. Um, and so, yeah, and it is kind of frustrating because there it only happens so infrequently, um, which is not to say that things can't be done in the five-year kind of interim. Um, but it's also worth noting, right, like, the five-year time span it's also just just outside the length that like a Stanford undergraduate remains um, here so mm. it's it's sort of really hard to keep that attention up throughout that period um, and so that's sort of another thing we're trying to do is like trying to focus attention on workers issues constantly even when contract negotiations aren't going on what, what sorts of work can be done outside of the contract negotiation period yeah so there are opportunities for realignments. So what that means is like, for example, um, workers in the dining halls might not have their wages aligned with workers in the athletics buildings or workers in Slack. Oh, interesting. Um, And so that's something we can run. And that's like very complicated, like sort of administrative process, but sort of making sure all the wages sort of line up with where they should be, which it's often really hard to manage because a lot of people work at Stanford. Um, there's a lot that goes into making this university run. Um, and so that's something that can be done. Um, also, I mean, the contract does not preclude, though, of course, it's very difficult in practice, like fighting for wage raises, like in between contract negotiations. So that's very difficult in practice. What, what kind of avenue would that go through in terms of? I mean, ultimately, it's up to people in R&DE, which is Residential and Dining Enterprises and and LBRE, who can, I mean, at any time, not that they have any incentive to, but can at any time, you know, raise, you know, it's not, it's not a ceiling that's set in the contract. Um, But besides that, I mean, it's sort of tending to other problems that workers face, which often involves problems in terms of grievances, if there are problems with management, and then also you know, as we've sort of talked about, like other services that we can offer in terms of transportation and things like that. Hmm. Let's move on to the projects that you were briefly mentioning before. Uh, And let's begin with the Marguerite extension Mm -hmm. to East Palo Alto. Could you go into a little more detail about that? Yeah, so that was an idea from the GUP, um, which in the GUP, I mean, before Stanford pulled out, there was sort of... um, <clears throat> Excuse me. There was uh, a proposal to have Stanford extend the Marguerite lines to East Palo Alto, where a lot of workers live. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, after the GUP got pulled out, that's no longer right. an option. But um, a couple of organizers in Students for Workers' Rights worked really hard to um, get the funding to basically have a pilot for one day, which was supposed to be on March 3rd, this past Tuesday. Um basically having a test run for one day of mm-hmm. having the Marguerite run from Stanford to and through the neighborhoods of East Palo Alto. Um, we got funding for it. And then we were also in, we told Stanford Transportation that this was happening. And then um, we also uh, like sort of talked to workers about like what the route should be that would be optimal for them. Um, and then we were pretty much in the middle of sort of actually telling workers that this was happening on March 3rd mm-hmm. um, when we were basically informed and it's not entirely clear why we were told about 
issues around liability, but last week we were basically informed that like the pilot could not move forward by Stanford Transportation. And who informed you? Um, it was Stanford Transportation okay. itself, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the planning behind this, this was a pre like a predetermined route that you just were kind of reviving. Was there any planning done by the organization itself no, that went so into we, it? So we basically asked workers who lived in East Palo Alto, like, what would the stops be oh, that, that, that you would want to have? And that's okay. how the route was. That's oh, how the wow. route was designed. Yeah. And how much participation did you get from these uh, residents of East Palo Alto? Was there a, a did you ask a majority of them? Were, were there per, uh, how did that work out? Um, if I'm not mistaken, most of it was, a lot of it was like us just informally talking to workers we knew, but then also, if I'm not mistaken, the union uh, sent out sort of a... Here's where we want yeah. the stops. That's very yeah, interesting. Yeah. Or no, the union asked workers who live in East Palo Alto, okay. you know, because they have sort of a more direct line to more sure. people than we do. Was it like a focus group of sorts or more like a survey kind of a More thing? like a survey, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Um Let's go into the other projects then that you also mentioned. Could you uh, touch on those as well? Yeah. So we sort of found out at the begin around the middle of autumn quarter, um, though the status of it is sort of in the air right now. But that residential and dining enterprises was planning to run what's called a time and motion study, mm-hmm. um, which is a very philosophical name. Uh, it's basically they were going to hire or they have hired a consulting company called core management services um which basically and according to core management services website from what i can glean they have also done this at other universities but basically what a time in motion study is is that consultants come here to stanford um and because this is under rnde's purview this would be for the custodians who work in the dorms specifically mm-hmm. um Basically, they sort of measure, like, the efficiency of, like, janitorial work. What this looks like in practice is that, um, like, consultants would come and basically, like, watch janitors, like, as they, like, do their work and go about their day. Um, And sort of, like, often the the outcomes of these studies are that there's sort of an efficiency report about, like, how many custodians you really need to have hired, um, if that makes any sense. Um, And so our latest update on that was basically we knew that custodians were being called in for interviews with people from core management services. As far as I know, no actual observation has taken place. Um, But over the past couple months, we were sort of struggling to just like find out any information from administrators in RNDE about when or where or how or if the study was going to proceed at all or just like we just wanted to find out information um, but we were just sort of repeatedly being redirected between officials um, and we couldn't actually find out what was going to happen why the study was being undertaken in the first place how much it caught you know just sort of basic things and so that's why last week we waged um, a phone banking campaign um, where we had people calling in repeatedly to uh, three officials in R&DE um, and yeah and so that's sort of that and what what concerns do you guys have about what the study may involve or implications? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, 
personally, I think it's the the practice of the study itself is like extremely invasive and degrading. <laughs> um, you know, like in terms of like consultants coming and just like observing janitors and sort and, of and that's the thing. Sorry, you said hasn't. That's like the tenuous web that's happening. Okay, yeah, got it. But yeah. we do know that some custodians have been sort of called in to like be interviewed by consultants from core management mm, okay. services. But as far as we know, thankfully, like no actual observation has taken place yet. Mm. Um, but basically, the worst case scenario is that like besides sort of whatever qualms anyone may have about the practice of the study, the worries might be mainly are around like if people would get laid off because of sort of the outcome of this of the study, whatever the results that core management services produce are. Right. Um, it's never going to be hire more workers. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, and like the reason these studies are undertaken, if you actually go on core management services, website, so it's like a cost cutting. Yeah. 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 Right, it's yeah. about efficiency and, and cost cutting. Um, R and D has told us that like, and also because the janitors are unionized, that you know no layoffs are planned. But then it's also just generally unclear to us like then why is right, that study yeah. being undertaken so it's really an issue of transparency okay um and trying to figure out why it's happening but so far as far as we know um consultants from core management services have made contact but they haven't actually undergone the actual observation that the study mm. would entail yeah so you mentioned that uh the organization is small seven people yeah. um Ish, why do yeah. you think it is important for students like yourself to be involved in these sorts of uh, advocacy type activities? Um, well, I mean, you know, the workers on this campus make all of our lives possible. Um, I mean, they're here because we're here, right, on the whole. Right. Um, because we live and eat here right. and go to school here. Um, and so I think, honestly, all of us as students have an obligation to these people who make our lives as students possible um, to make sure that they are not suffering excessively. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, because it really is because of us. And it really is, you know, in some ways, students have are sort of on the top in this power dynamic. Right. That's true. Um, And so we are in a particularly placed because the workers are here because of us to apply pressure to the university, right? Um, And that historically is what has worked out successfully um, is when students do apply pressure is that workers make gains. Um, But yeah, I mean, on the whole, in particular around workers' rights, I mean, they're here because of us, because of you, and you chose to come here, theoretically, hopefully, as a student. (laughs) So, yeah, I think we all have a responsibility. Yeah, I agree. Mm. It's up to us because we have that power dynamic and because we recognize that these individuals are commuting three, four, five hours one way from places like Tracy or Manteca. You know, we have not necessarily an obligation, but an inclination or at least... Maybe a responsibility, responsibility just to say, yeah. hey, let's do what we can to help these people that care about us. Maybe we can care about them. Right, right. Um, and I will say, like, you know, it's very easy to go, like, all four years, like, without even thinking about these issues. And in some ways, maybe that's what the university wants mm-hmm. you to do as a student is to not think about it. Um there's actually a really great study that was done in 2006 by a 
student in CSRE, he did an overview of the history of labor organizing on campus. Um, and he said that his thesis was basically that workers on this campus are not invisible, they're made invisible. And it is a constant sort of active process. And so we as students are the people who can do the work to sort of undo yeah. that kind of a process. Yeah. To take them from behind the scenes to the forefront. Right. Because they really are the heart and soul of the campus right. because of the work that they do. Right. All right. Well, Arman Rashid, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon from Students for Workers' Rights. I really appreciate your insight uh, this afternoon, and I just want to say thank you for coming in on a Friday afternoon. Thank you for having me. All righty. You have just heard my conversation with Arman Rashid. uh, And coming up right after this, this week on campus, Dr. Karen Eggleston, a health economist and senior fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute, gave a crash course on the background of the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak and insights into effort to solve that crisis in the medical community. Here now is an excerpt from her Tuesday afternoon lecture at the Bechtel International Center. Right now, you are listening to The Relatively Roundtable on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. A crisis like this, many others have said, and I would say is really like a stress test to not only the public health system, but its interaction with broader society and the economy. In each of the health systems where this has been uh, the focus, of course, most um, stressed has been China, where it first developed, and now it's spread to many other uh, countries and systems around the world. Many don't have um, as many resources as others that are um, currently affected by this. So, and so when you look at the numbers and you say, well, there are over 100 in Singapore, but only one or two in Indonesia, that doesn't necessarily mean that it has not spread elsewhere. It means that testing kits are in short supply, they can't do contact tracing the same way. So we have to think about these numbers in the context of how health systems are stronger and weaker and more or less strained in dealing with an outbreak like this. Um, There are definitely trade-offs, as you all know, between um, controlling the virus spread in certain ways are appropriate at the beginning and the intermediate and later times. Like later, we may or may not have gatherings like this, um, depending on whether it comes here or not, or if any of you have traveled from Iran or South Korea or Wuhan in the past 14. Um, so there are trade-offs between virus control and the social and economic costs. And as you may know, there are millions of people now that have been under lockdown um, for, for at least in Wuhan, for going on two months now. A lot of education, including schooling, is all online. Um, I speak from someone who myself was self-isolated for two weeks. Um, so I understand there are deep trade-offs dealing with um, these issues having to do with controlling the virus spread, taking care of ourselves, and, and um, trying to minimize the social and economic impacts. Because, of course, not everyone can afford to work from home and lose income and door dash fresh fruit and vegetables. Okay? We can all remind ourselves that experts have long warned that the issue of a pandemic is not um, if, but when. We don't yet know if this is As Bill Gates said in his recent New England Journal of Medical piece, um, this might be the once in a century pathogen that we've all been um, fearing. 
and be, unless we know, uh, until we know better, we should be treating it as such and preparing for that. Um, it's been labeled COVID-19, Corona virus uh, disease that developed at the end of 2019. Um, and it has, why is this such an issue? But it has a combination of high transmissibility and a higher case fatality rate than some other pathogens. And the combination of those two things could mean that can spread uh, much more and cause more overall burden than many other pathogens have. So I'll talk a little bit more about that. So for example, seasonal influenza has a much lower um, case fatality rate 20 times lower, although these numbers, it's a new virus, right? So we don't have full information. And as you know, the most severe cases are ones that are labeled first. So we don't know how many are in that denominator of people that were infected but didn't show up in the numbers yet. But we do know the combination seems that the um, fatality rate is lower than some other coronaviruses, but higher than seasonal influenza and that people may pass it before um, they already have symptoms. So uh, travel bans and so on won't catch everybody and, and experts have known that um, to begin with. So, but it's important to remember that both of these important factors, their properties of the virus itself, transmissibility and um, impact on health, but they are also under our own control in some respects and relate to the resiliency of our health system and our society. So, of course, um, transmissibility can be um, affected by um, isolating case when it's phoned, contact tasting all the people with, that might have been exposed, imposing a quarantine, or as what's happened at Wuhan, a cordon sanitaire, which is the whole area is not uh, allowed to travel or go out. Um, what's called social distancing, which would be um, not only that, but avoiding large gatherings, shutting down schools, as has happened in China, and so, and so on. Um, as well as making sure healthcare workers, who are often the first responders for anything like this, are aware of what's going on and have protective equipment and know when to use them. So of course, if you have gone to see a dentist or a doctor in the past um, year, they're not coming to care for you in a hazmat suit right? Because they, that would not be appropriate. But at some point, the doctors in Wuhan had to know that they had to wear all hazmat suits. So that information comes out over time and then people have to know. So the famous, um, there are many healthcare workers that have perished to this. One named Li Wenyang was actually a doctor um, operating in the eye. He's not an infectious disease specialist. So that goes to show about how these properties are inherent to the virus itself, we're still learning, but also related to the steps that we take to control. Um, there are several visualizations of how it is spread and where it's affected most. This is one um, from the WHO. There's one through Johns Hopkins, which has a regular update. Some Stanford students also tried to prepare one. So you can go there if you wanna know what cases have been confirmed where, since when. Um, the social and economic costs estimates at this point are highly uncertain. Obviously, it depends on how society responds, how quickly the economy gets going again, and how many people are directly um, impacted, as well as, of course, um, whether it is in areas of, we know the kind of people that are most vulnerable, the healthcare workers and the people that are older and have chronic conditions. And so as long as, um, 
it, uh, the overall impact will depend on how many in those groups are impacted in Iran and northern Italy as well as here and elsewhere. And it will also, um, and that of course will depend on our own response, but it also will depend on um, the social and economic costs of keeping all those people at home for a time period and not feeding into the global supply chains and providing things like producing the face masks and the drugs and so on for therapy. So there's, there's a trade-off there. We know if there have been unprecedented kinds of lockdown of whole cities, you know, the question would be if we had a few dozen cases and a few hundred confirmed infections in New York City, would we have done what they did in Wuhan? I mean, maybe or may not have been appropriate. It depends on your health system and how you respond to it, right? Um, there have been many efforts to estimate the impact in China. That will depend going forward. They have declared that people that are getting treatment, that's covered by the government, and then they've also had um, announcements there as well as in other economies affected by this that monetary and fiscal policy and various measures will try to cushion the effect on society and the economy. Um, and that's still playing out in the headlines, and we won't know how all that works um, for a while. So there are several studies that try to, as the epidemic itself is unfolding, there are scientists trying to understand the characteristics of the virus itself, as well as the epidemiology of what's going on. Um, so here are some going to the question about the origins of the virus itself. We know that it's a coronavirus, hence the name, and there have been previous coronaviruses such as SARS, similarity to that, that's why the name of the virus has SARS in it. Um, uh, MERS, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, is another coronavirus. And we know that these can cause severe respiratory um, diseases. There are a lot of other detail you can see in this study, which also summarizes other studies. I won't get into that. That's not necessarily my area of expertise. But it's important to emphasize that um, we're learning about this as we go. Right? And we're learning about what the virus is and how it operates, um, both in terms of the way it's transmitted and um, fatality rate, based on um, what we gather from the first cases since they became known in late December through now. So here are the clinical characteristics, again, based on a study from that early time period in Wuhan. Um, it's, it's showing that um, there seemed to be uh, more of an effect on older adult males than females. Again, we don't know if that happened to be the pattern of who was at the seafood market and who was exposed or just the cases that were identified, but that's the earliest um, data. We do know the people that are most vulnerable, those who are older and have other vulnerabilities or other underlying health conditions. It's important to remember that of the 92,000 or more cases that have been confirmed globally, the vast majority have either mild illness or have recovered. Johns Hopkins um, visualization lists the number of that have recovered, and you can look at that green line going up as well as the number of cases. Uh, so just to try to keep things in perspective, that is also happening. These are the two most critical uh, factors for determining the overall impact of an epidemic, as well as the impact of the control strategies will have on society and the economy. Um, so neither the 2009 pandemic influenza, H1N1, which we should be familiar with since this year, California, um, or uh, the SARS or the MERS, um, none of them had this combination 
of high transmissibility and severity, right? So um, you can think of transmissibility, there's a basic reproductive number, it's commonly used to measure transmissibility, defined by the number of additional persons one case infects over the course of the illness. Of course, that also depends on the steps the individual takes to self-isolate or whether quarantine is put in place and so on. So there's an underlying R1 of the virus itself as well as the realized transmissibility depending on the a response. But higher than one indicates it has um, potential for ongoing and community-based infection, and we do know it's definitely over one. It's, it's over two, according to some of the early studies for, for this. Um, H1N1, you may or may not remember, first identified in, in California in 2009, was highly transmissible. So it did have also a high number. Um, how easily we forget that it spread to 41 states and 21 countries um, very quickly in three months, but it was not severe. Um, so although it was estimated to have uh, you know, spread very widely, the actual case fatality rate, that number we don't exactly have pinned down yet, but we do know that um, for H1N1 it was much lower than it is for this virus. So again, the final full spread depends on um, the steps that each society takes to respond to that and how resilient our healthcare systems are to prepare ahead of time for a broader number of cases, how able to, to uh, trace the context of given cases and isolate them to take steps from further spread. So that are some of the questions that are involved in any epidemiological study. As you can see here, see here as, as one of the earlier publications on this pointed out, there are standard rules of, of disease, uh, dealing with such an outbreak to try to understand that mild or asymptomatic bottom of the pyramid here. So at the beginning, we're seeing this part of the pyramid, but we need this part to know the actual overall um, fatality rate of, of the virus or how severe it is. And as we know, there's a shortage of testing kits. If you, if you have that here, think about what's going on in Cambodia or Indonesia or Sub-Saharan Africa, right? And so the ability to test everybody and see how many are in that mild or asymptomatic group, we just can't know that for sure yet. So it's not that we're covering up information necessarily. A lot of scientists are trying to share as much as we know. How fast can we get a cure or a vaccine? That's on what is on a lot of people's minds. As I mentioned, there's been rapid international cooperation, at least among scientists, um, and that may help to enable a cure and vaccine faster than previously. Um, and a lot of that depends on how much we follow through with investment, because you know a lot of uh, responses were made to Ebola, but not necessarily to follow through. Um, the WHO had actually put coronaviruses like SARS and MERS on its priority pathogen list back in 2017. But it's only a crisis like this that mobilizes the researchers to follow through then and make sure we're really prepared for this becoming a pandemic. So because within weeks of the cluster of cases, in other words, by January 10th, because researchers already had the genomic sequence, that data sharing enabled vaccine candidates, and we know there have been already in the very preliminary stages of, of trials, and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, CEPI, 
um, is an international public-private partner collaboration. Um, and through their efforts and others of the WHO, there are already at least eight um, vaccine candidates. Some may be promising for this. Clinical trials in the next phases in the coming months, um, maybe by June to getting to those. Three. But a vaccine itself is very unlikely to be ready until um, a year or maybe ready within a year, depending on how quickly that happens. So um, that is ongoing at the same time um, health systems are exploring what kind of treatments are available for current cases. Antivirals such as remdesivir have been tried. Indeed, the first um, known cases here in the US got a compassionate use for using that, and there seemed to be improvement. We don't know for sure if that was just because it was a mild or how effective it was. But this is actually under, um, there's been public-private partnership in trying to get into a clinical trial in China right away, which is currently ongoing. Um, although, even earlier, the WHO had identified these pathogens as, as a priority, but there hadn't been follow-through at that time. So hopefully, there will be more funding and public-private partnership to really make preparedness for these kinds of outbreaks available and as a global public good, including for countries and individuals that are less well-resourced than we may be right here. Um, this, you know, I said in my slides yesterday, things have changed between yesterday and today, but um, we know there are, it's not a question of, you know, when will it get to the U.S.? We know it's here. We know it's here in Santa Clara County. This is a question of, um, it's many fewer people than are affected by the cold or influenza. But again, for people that are older with other uh, chronic conditions, it can be extremely severe. So um, we're trying to try to get the message out that everybody needs to do what they can to prepare, and most importantly, to frequently wash your hands and support others around you. If anything good can come of this uh, crisis, if we all teach our family and our households the importance of that hand washing, it will help to control colds and flu, as well as coronaviruses. Be surprised the number of people even of healthcare workers that sometimes forget to regularly wash their hands as we get busy, and that's one of the most important things. But you can think about other things to do. Do not stock up on clinical quality face masks. Our healthcare workers need those, but maybe prescription medicines. Make sure that older people in your household, in your community, in your network, maybe you can make it possible for you to FaceTime them rather than go visit them if you have a cold. Try to get them prepared for interacting in that way to keep in touch if you need to. In your community, try to support the people that are self-isolating on behalf of others rather than to stigmatize them because that just drives people underground and then there's more transmission. So I think there are concrete things that we can all do to try to respond to this public health crisis. And you've been listening to Dr. Karen Eggleston speaking Tuesday afternoon on coronavirus at the Bechtel International Center on campus. As for your local news headlines this afternoon, Santa Clara County is reporting four new cases of COVID-19, bringing the total number of cases in the county to 24. Two of those individuals have been hospitalized, while the other two are under self-isolation. 
Meanwhile, an update on the Grand Princess cruise ship that has been banned from docking in San Francisco and that is now anchored off of our coast. It has been announced by Vice President Mike Pence that at least 21 of the more than 2,000 passengers on board have tested positive for coronavirus. And the annual South by Southwest Arts and Tech Festival has been canceled by the city of Austin, Texas, following fears of coronavirus. More than 50,000 people had signed a petition for the event's cancellation. Another rough day on Wall Street, although not quite as bad as we have seen in the recent weeks. Concerns over coronavirus continue to make investors nervous, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average falling nearly 1%, 256 points to 25,864. The Nasdaq tumbling 162 points to 85.75, and the S&P 500 falling 51 points to 29.72. In Palo Alto, police are looking to identify a suspect who robbed the CVS pharmacy in the Midtown neighborhood of Palo Alto. The male suspect entered the CVS last Sunday afternoon and passed a note to an employee in the pharmacy demanding prescription drugs and indicated that he had a gun. The employee loaded an undisclosed amount of prescription drugs into the suspect's backpack, and the suspect then left the store. The employee describes the suspect as being a white male between 25 to 35 years old, 5 feet 10 inches tall, and weighing 175 pounds. The suspect wore a black and purple Colorado Rockies baseball hat, dark sunglasses, a black sweater or jacket over a blue shirt, and carried a gray backpack. Anyone with information is asked to call Palo Alto Police. As for your weather forecast, rain. That's right, wet weather finally returning to the forecast after a record-setting dry spell. This past week probably had you wondering where winter went. While this cloudy skies that we saw today and cooler temperatures were an indication of the incoming storm, you can expect rain in the early morning hours tomorrow morning, first in the North Bay before it gradually moves south through the early afternoon. Highs tomorrow and Sunday only reaching the 50s and low 60s. Sunday mostly dry, but another system moves in early next week through Wednesday. And also, remember that it is that time of the year again to spring forward. Daylight saving time begins at 2 a.m. Sunday morning. So remember to set those clocks forward by one hour before you go to bed Saturday night. And now the latest episodes from our friends at the Stanford Daily Podcast team for a look at the Cardinal Cookoff. For more on this podcast from the Stanford Daily, visit their website at stanforddaily.com. We have to interrupt this podcast because of late breaking news this hour. Stanford Provost Persis Drell has just sent out a message to the community, and I'm going to quote from this email. Persis Drell says, I want to let you know that Stanford has two undergraduate students in self-isolation after possible exposure to COVID-19. The students are not displaying any symptoms of COVID-19, but have been tested at Stanford HealthCare. There has been no confirmation of infection at this time, and test results are expected to take up to 24 hours. Both students have moved out of their regular undergraduate housing and are in self-isolation elsewhere. Persis Drell also says, I know that this development will be a source of anxiety and concern. We continue to be guided in our actions by medical professionals and public health guidance, and our team of university leaders is prepared to take additional steps to safeguard the health of our community as they become necessary. 
developing story there, and a statement from Provost Persis Drell on the coronavirus here on campus. And on that note, thank you for taking us a seat with us at the Relatively Roundtable this week. We really do appreciate it. You can find more on our Twitter page, at Relatively Round. I'm Kender, and on behalf of Ishan Gandhi and our friends at the Stanford Daily, have a great weekend, be safe out there, watch out for the rain. <laughs>